This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This is a foundation message. We are I'm giving a discipleship message. I'm giving what I would term possibly the most foundational of all foundational discipleship messages today. And for some of you, it's like, yeah, I know this. I, I know this. Well, good. So do I. And yet I am edified in the meditation on it. This is not, as I said to the, uh, the newly arriving conferees last night, you don't eat truth once in a lifetime any more than you eat food once in a lifetime. You eat it every day. And this is the truth that doesn't just satisfy but makes you strong in the kingdom of heaven. All right, you guys ready for this? Foundational Discipleship 101. The turn of faith. A study in how believing in Jesus Christ actually works. Many of you have been told to believe. And so you understand the basic construct that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. When we believe in him, we are offered that salvation that he has bequeathed to us at the cross. However, if I were to ask you how belief works, how do the mechanics of it actually function, that's a tricky one. And so many of us struggle with being able to even articulate it to ourselves, let alone to someone else. And so we come up to them on the street and we say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, how do you do that? We're like, I don't know. That's just what I'm supposed to tell you. In other words, how does this work? And so in our own life, we need to understand how the mechanics of faith actually work. So throughout this message, you're going to see these two trees. Because in essence, what we have from the very beginning to the very end of this thing known as the kingdom of heaven and the truth of the kingdom of heaven coming to this earth is it's a story of two trees. So in the very beginning, we have a garden. You remember how many... There was a lot of trees in the garden, but God mentions two in particular. Two trees. There's two trees there. And all throughout history, there's still two trees. There's the tree that has some fruit on it that the day in which you eat of it, you surely die. And then there's another tree. The fruit upon which, if you do not eat, you will never live. And that second tree is known as the cross. And so we have two trees. And how you decide and to which tree you turn defines everything in your life. And so I'm just getting you familiar with the trees. And over here, the tree with the black fruit. I, I know black fruit just doesn't sound very good. Uh, and, and yet it's more symbolic. It actually looks good to your natural senses. It looks luscious, good to eat. However, it's putrid. It leads to death. Now, I, it's funny because white fruit doesn't sound any better. If you've ever seen a piece of white fruit, it's because it probably had something growing on it, Right? And so both of these pictures aren't necessarily ideal, but it's pure fruit. It's that which brings life, okay? One tree is producing fruit in your life of death. The other produces the fruit of life. And so there's a choice between two trees, and I'm going to explain to you how faith works. The triumphant return of faith, understanding fact, 
faith, and experience. So if you go through a semester at Ellerslie, you will hear about fact, faith, and experience. Oh, I don't know what it's at. Someone should count. Just we'll get a little clicker and count. I mean, uh, 20 times? Okay, in nine weeks, that's a lot of times. And so you could say, uh, that's vain repetition, Eric. No, it's not vain. It's actually repetition for the sake of understanding. It's amazing, but sometimes it takes someone 10 times before they actually catch it. It's like, well, you've been saying that same story, and now I finally get it. And then the, 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 the rest of the 10 times that I give it, then they're like, yeah, 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 preach it, Ludi. You see, when you catch these ideas, they change your life. So fact, faith, and experience. I didn't come up with this illustration. This is an old, old illustration in Christian history. So you have basically a ridgepole, and you have three characters that are being asked to pull off the impossible. I know walking a ridgepole of a barn doesn't sound impossible. I, I know. Either does Christianity. When you first hear about Christianity, you're like, I could do that. Oh, yeah. Be holy as he is holy. Uh, that's not that big of a deal. Be perfect as he is perfect. I'm sure that isn't that hard. You know, to take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus, someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Oh, come on. That's not that difficult. Uh, you can't do it. You see, the same is true with this, this ridgepole. At first blush, when I say, go walk a ridgepole, you're like, no problem. I got good balance. Yeah, but this is a razor's edge. It is deemed impossible. No human could possibly walk it. So this is where the story comes in. We have three characters. Fact, faith, and experience. The first character, named Fact, gets up onto the ridgepole. Remember I said it's impossible to walk? And what does he do? He walks it. Doesn't that sort of mess with your understanding, your definition of the word impossible? It's like, Eric, I thought you said it was impossible. Well, it is, but not for fact. You see, when I say the word fact, you don't think actually what you should be thinking. See, truth is actually the same as fact, except for truth has a personal dimension to it. Fact is just data. But Jesus is known as the truth. And when he came to this earth, he actually lived out that which is impossible. He is truth. And truth actually is able. It has perfect balance. It never falters. It is able to accomplish that which it sets out to do. Jesus did it. And so I'm going to call it fact in this because I think it's important for you to recognize that there are certain things that are incontrovertible. We live in a postmodern era which is always trying to make truth into jello. And as a result, it's like, oh, well, you believe that, but no one really knows for certain. There are certain things we do know for certain. And as a result, for Christianity to function, you better know what those things are. Christianity and postmodernism do not mix. Christianity needs truth to work. If it loses sight of truth, the whole thing falls apart. And that's the great battle of our age. So we have fact, and it just walks it. You know, two plus two equaling four. We call that a fact. And you know that it will never change? You see, facts, truth, they just are. It doesn't matter how you feel about it, and you can say, I just don't feel good about two plus two equaling four. I don't care. It really makes no difference to me how you feel about two plus two equaling four. It just does. So whether or not you want it to or not, it still equals that. And, you know, I get all excited about teaching math to my kids, and I get more excited probably than I should. Because when I'm teaching math, it's, I remember when I first taught Hudson 2 plus 2 equaling 4. And I had a big smile on my face, like, buddy, 
Do you realize that if you get this down, it will never change on you? For the rest of all eternity, forever and ever and always, two plus two will equal four. And he's looking at me going, what? And I don't care at all. <laughs> the same is true when you understand God. When you grasp the kingdom of heaven, when you know the truth, it'll never change on you, ever. Truth does not evolve. It does not change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's what transforms us. You can build upon it. When you see it, you build right there. You stand right there. So when you see it, it will change you. And that's why the world is trying to disturb it, undermine it, cloud it over. This is a message about seeing it. Seeing the truth and letting it set you free. So that's fact. Get excited about it. The second character is known as faith. Faith is where you come in. You see, you've been set out in a commission to do the impossible. Depending on where you look with your eyes will define how you respond to this challenge. If you stare down at the, uh, the impossible razor-like edge that you're supposed to walk, you'll stumble because you're staring at the impossible itself. However, if you keep your gaze fixed on fact, it's amazing, but faith gains balance and walks the ridgepole. I know, I know. I just said, I told you this was impossible, and yet the first two characters are actually pulling it off. The secret to faith walking the ridgepole is to keep its gaze fixed on fact. And if it does, it actually gains balance. Now, all would be fine and dandy if there wasn't a third character. There's a third character, and his name is experience. Experience makes a lot of noise. And you could, we could compare notes later, and you would have to agree. Boy, he is loud. I call him a loud mouth. And he's always clawing at faith. And he's trying to grab his shirt coat. And he's, try, he's like, hey, hey, turn this way. There's a lot of reasons why we should doubt that truth. Why we should doubt those facts. Do you remember great Aunt Martha? Yeah, great Aunt Martha was a Christian. I heard that she prayed, but look how she died. Planting down. Remember Uncle Frank? He called himself a Christian. He was one of the rudest, meanest men on earth. Thought, yeah, that's a good point. You see, if faith turns and consults experience and takes its gaze off the fact, you know what happens? You see, experience can't walk it at all. Experience is all over the place. And experience falls off the ridgepole. There's a big pile of manure down there. And what happens to faith? It follows suit. Most of us have spent our life as Christians at the bottom of the barn in a pile of manure, staring up at this lofty thing known as the Christian life. This lofty calling of walking out this impossibility of being perfect as he is perfect, being holy as he is holy. And as a result, we finally come to the place where we shrug our shoulders and say, maybe this is where I'm supposed to remain. Maybe I'm just supposed to esteem it. I'm not, not actually supposed to do it. Welcome to modern Christianity. Living the manure pile, staring up at the grand life of Jesus Christ as he walks it. Meanwhile, hanging out with experience saying, how you doing? Yeah, not so good. Me either. You see, experience is not meant to be your tutor. Does God care about your experience? Does he care if experience walks the ridgepole? It's an interesting question because experience is actually what happens in your life. Does he care about that matching with the truth? You may have faith, but what if for the rest of your life your experience contradicts it? That doesn't sound like a very healthy life either. 
You know that God intended experience to walk the ridgepole? You want to know the secret? If you catch this, it might take me 10 repetitions before you do, but if you can catch this, it'll change your life. When faith fixes its gaze on fact, ignores, keyword, ignores, shuns, cuts off the voice of experience and says, I don't care. This is what God has said, and he cannot lie. When you follow fact and completely shun experience, you know what happens to experience? Experience gains balance. Experience gains balance and begins to walk out the impossible when it is ignored and it's following faith, following fact. Suddenly, Christianity works. When you make fact your tutor, fact your teacher, fact your Lord, as opposed to experience. A lot of you in here have baggage behind you. All sorts of reasons why we should question the truth of God's word. How about we ignore that and trust something greater than us? We begin to build our life on the truth of Scripture. Faith needs something in order to be faith. The very idea of faith is based on this premise. Faith needs something. You see, it's not just faith, oh, I have faith. Faith is in something. It needs an object. It needs something to believe in. So faith needs something in order to be faith. It needs an object of faith. It needs something to look upon and consider impressive. It needs something to trust, something to put its confidence in. It needs an object of salvation. Ironically, many of us turn to experience and think that by following experience, we will be stronger. We trust our emotions. We think very highly of our own emotions. And we put confidence in that. We put confidence in our own ability to save We put confidence in our medicine cabinet. We put confidence in the psychologist down the road. Have any of us ever considered putting our confidence in the creator of the universe? Rather brilliant thing to consider. The girl and her treasure, the beautiful picture of faith in action. I want you to listen to this story, and I want you to realize that the idea of faith is being unveiled to us, how faith works. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper... As he, Jesus, sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask. A flask is like a jar or a container of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask or the jar or the container and poured it on his head. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard. There's debate of whether this is the same Mary, a different Mary, different situation. Very costly. But one thing we do know about it, it's two Marys or one Mary. And it's very costly ointment, and it's spikenard in some kind of jar. One's poured on his head, one's poured on his feet. And anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. So, so who cares? The indignation of the onlookers. But that spikenard is some valuable stuff. When it says very costly, it means it. This is worth a year's wages. So if you worked for an entire year and put all of your savings into everything you're making into a fund to buy one jar. That's how much this is worth. This is extremely valuable stuff. And it's the sort of thing that you could easily put your confidence in because it's worth a lot. And if you ever come into hard times, what can you do? Well, you have your spike nard. And so as a result, Mary had confidence in this spike nard. And I'll build that of how I know that to be the case. 
Now, when she actually found the object of her salvation, you see, she had always stared at her spike nard and said, oh, I've got you, oh, spike nard, and petted it. And yet when she saw Jesus, she saw something worthy of her faith. What she did is she took that which she had trusted in and she broke it open on Jesus. You see, this is what's called Christianity. This is what we do. This is the most basic movement of soul in regards to the person of Jesus Christ. You must forsake the first to have the second. You must give up life as you once knew it to gain newness of life in Christ Jesus. So when you pour out that spike nard, did you know that it doesn't go over very well with the world around you? Hey, 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 I had such high hopes for you. I, I, I thought you were going to amount to something. Don't give your life to Jesus. Oh, no, we have another one of those Christians. But that spike nard is some valuable stuff. And there were some that had indignation within themselves. Same story. They weren't happy about Mary pouring out a year's worth of wages and said, why was this waste of the ointment made to the world that looks like a waste to pour out your life for Jesus Christ? Then saith one of his disciples, named Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? You see, that spirit, even in the church, that will betray Jesus for selfish gain, hates this idea of giving everything to Jesus Christ. When you see that object worthy of your worship, worthy of your trust, you're seeing in this story the proper response. You're seeing something quite extreme too. She is literally going into her pantry and she sees the one thing on the shelf and she says, but God, that's for a rainy day. That's my alternate salvation plan. And he says, well, are you willing to give up all your alternate salvation plans? and bring them to my feet and break them open? You see, what we're seeing in this story is a picture of how the gospel interrelates with our lives. What is, oh, by the way, after this scene, Judas went and betrayed Jesus. Uh-huh. You see, this cuts right down to the quick. You're either for Jesus or against him. When, when Judas saw this waste, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. That's it! That's it! And he went and betrayed Jesus into the hands of of sinners. What is spikenard? Just a quick study on spikenard, just because if you know what spikenard is, you understand what she's giving up. We're going to call it the healing juice, or the nardos. The word in the Greek is a very unhappy word, known as nardos. It's spikenard, the head of a fragrant East Indian plant, which yields an oily juice of delicious odor, which the ancients used, either pure or mixed, in the preparation of a most precious ointment. It is a healing juice. You ever heard of a healing juice? We have all sorts of juices out there, drinks out there that are supposed to do all sorts of great stuff for your body. Well, this is the original one of those. It's called spikenard. It is a healing juice used for an extraordinary number of ailments. Listen to this. You're going to want to go out and buy some of this stuff the moment you hear this. It's a skin tonic that helps to cure fungal and bacterial skin infections. So, those of you that are struggling right now, you got your stuff here. And provides relief from various types of inflammation. It helps cure constipation. It provides relief from insomnia, stress, and anxiety. It's a perfume, and it's also an effective deodorant. Could you imagine being able to deal with your fungal infection and smell good at the same time? 
In addition to that, it treats allergies, fevers, hemorrhoids, angina pain, and varicose veins. This healing juice aids in cell regeneration, the healing of wounds, the circulation of blood and lymph, and the secretion of hormones and enzymes. It's the cure-all substance. Uh, Mary, that's worth a lot. That's a year's worth of wages. You know how much benefit you can have with that? What's Mary doing? Well, hey, Mary, no, no. I don't know what you're thinking right now, but put it down. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't pour that stuff out. Mary poured out the cure-all substance. She took that which was worth a year's wages and she dumped it out on Jesus Christ. So a quick lesson in the Greek. Three words to help us understand the idea of faith. Introducing Mary of Bethany and her treasure. So Mary had something quite special in her possession, a big jar of very expensive healing juice. This big jar of very expensive healing juice was the ideal thing to keep stowed away in her pantry. For if ever she fell upon hard times, she could always sell her extremely valuable healing juice in order to survive. So without even knowing it, she put her trust in this big jar of very expensive healing juice. I mean, do you blame her? Uh, do you have anything that you put trust in? Just one of those obscure things. It's like, well, I know at least I can fall back on this. I mean, parents are famous for teaching their kids to have a fallback plan. You know, it's like, and I want you to learn this trade, so just in case, you know, you can always fall back on this. Mary simply has a fallback plan. I mean, come on, you can't blame her for that, and it's a good one. So the first Greek word we need to learn is pistis. That's a very common word in the New Testament. It's the word for faith. And so it's a noun. And so a lot of the words that you may be even familiar with flow out of this concept of pistis. So the translation typically in the New Testament is faith. Mary had faith, or pistis, in her big jar of very expensive healing juice. Mary was introduced to Jesus Christ. When she saw Jesus, she realized that he indeed was the proper object of her faith. Look, I've been putting my faith in this jar, thinking that this jar could come through with me, this jar could somehow work my salvation, when in actuality, I just met my salvation. When you meet your salvation, when you meet the trueness of Jesus Christ, What's your new relationship with your jar of healing juice? So she believed in Jesus Christ. So our second Greek word is a verb. And now you're going to notice it's very similar to pistis. However, its translation in the English language doesn't sound anywhere similar to faith. You see, faith is the noun, but when you turn it into a verb, we say the word believe. And as a result, most of us in modern Christianity do not link the word faith and believe together. In the Greek, they're the same word. One is a noun, and the other is the action of that noun. And that is what we call believe. So when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are putting faith in him. So pastuyo is the word, which means to believe. It's the action of faith. Mary, in seeing the ability of Jesus to save her, believed. Now I'm going to make up a word here. Pastuyoed in him and trusted that he indeed was her salvation. Mary realized that to believe in Jesus, she needed to give up her trust in her big jar of very expensive healing juice and transfer all of her confidence to the master of her salvation. So the very essence of how believing works, when you see the rightful object of your faith, anything that has claimed your faith before needs to be given up. And so for her, that was her big jar of healing juice. And so what did she do with it? Gave it up. 
she broke it open on the true object of her salvation. So here's where the, all your learning so far in the Greek, you guys are becoming masters of Greek uh, very quickly here. We have an adjective plus a noun that is used in this one story that we are describing here. And it would be pastikos and nardos. So you're already familiar with nardos. Remember that word, that spike nard? Associated with this in both stories that talk about spike nard is this word. It's an adjective. It's a description. And it's pastikos. So it's a description of the spike nard. Now, do you recognize pistis and pastuyo in that word? Yeah, pastikos. It's based on the same root Greek word. And it's associated with this word nardos. The translation is the object of one's faith. You see, Mary had a very costly jar, and it was the object of her faith. So in this story, we actually see her putting her faith in Jesus by taking that which was the object of her faith and breaking it open so that she can make Jesus the true object of her faith. In the Bible, it's called repentance. Mary broke open her big jar of very expensive healing juice on the head and feet of Jesus. She gave up her sole allegiance to her previous pasticonardos, the jar of healing juice, and transferred her loyalties to a new, all caps, pasticos nardos. I know that might not sound like a compliment for us to call Jesus uh, pasticos nardos. However, that's what he is. He is the object, the precious ointments of our salvation. Now, I said healing juice, and spikenard is an actual liquid. Did you know that we put our confidence in a special healing juice as well? Do you know that just as much as a juice comes forth out of this plant, when it is squeezed or when it is you know, crushed, there is something that was squeezed and crushed on our behalf, and it is so grand in comparison with spikenard that we will gladly forsake that healing juice of this earth that we may have the healing juice of heaven. So is the blood of Jesus. Four key truths about faith. Now, you're going to notice there's only one in the list. That doesn't make for a good list of four, does it? I'm going to build this throughout our message. Faith, to be genuine faith, must have action. So you may know, someone may say, did you know that Jesus is actually a much greater savior than your pasticos nardos over here, your, your spike nard? And you could say, true. However, if you don't have action to that faith, if you really believe he is the object of your faith, capital O for object, then what do you do? You take that which was previously your object and you give it up. You repent of it. You forsake it. That is the action of faith. You actually, to clear the way to be able to believe in Jesus must remove all the blinders that you have, all the hindrances to your faith. That which you would trust in otherwise must be forsaken so that you can clearly believe in Jesus. Number two, faith must have an object, a focal point in which to direct its confidence. So these are just four key truths about faith, and we'll build as we go. So Mary had an object. She believed her big jar of expensive healing juice could save her, but when she met Jesus, she repented of her faith in her sweet-smelling earthly liquid and transferred her confidence to something greater, the healing juice of heaven, the precious and priceless blood of Jesus Christ poured out for her. The healing juice of heaven, the blood of Jesus. And he, Jesus, took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. He's giving them some healing juice. 
saying, drink you all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. If you're impressed with what Spikenard can do, uh, whoa, have you ever seen what the blood of Jesus can do? What is the precious blood of Christ for? Now, this is actually just what it says in the New Testament, specifically about the shed blood. However, there's a massive list we could create indirectly about what it means to be clothed in Christ, which is the same as being clothed in that precious blood. It's for atonement from sin, a propitiation. It's for justification from sin, for the forgiveness of sin, for the remission of sins, for the cleansing and washing from all sin, for the purging of our consciences, for peace, for reconciliation to Christ, for righteousness, for the purpose of saving us from the wrath that will come, for the destruction of the devil, for overcoming the devil, for redemption, eternal redemption, for the purchase of our very beings for the purpose of giving us life within, eternal life, for the bringing back to life, for sanctification, for spiritual and physical healing, for boldness to enter into the holy of holies, the very presence of God, for the purpose of enabling us to make our daily, hourly, minute-by-minute home in Christ Jesus. And what were you saying about your spike nard over here? Come on! That's nothing! The blood of Jesus transforms our life and our, our eternity! It transforms, regenerates, wholly and completely alters our behavior and our destiny. Uh, give me that, please. Uh, but you'd have to give up your precious spike nard, Eric. I, I don't care about my spike nard. Do you see this treasure? Do you see this treasure? Do you see how precious Jesus is? Do you see how great he is? Do you see in contrast with the best this world has to offer that you would gladly give up everything you have in this world to gain all that Jesus Christ has given? Jesus points to Mary's actions. So why am I so confident that this is a picture of something that we need to focus on, that we need to see? Because Jesus points to it. He says, hey, guys, do you see this? This is it. And he makes it clear that her behavior is the essence of the gospel. Assuredly, I say to you, says Jesus, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. What does she do? She believed. You see, what she did is the proper response to Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus notates it. Now, if you share the gospel and don't bring up Mary, I, I don't know that that's exactly what Jesus said. That, oh, well, that's not the real gospel then. You didn't bring up Mary of Bethany. However, what Mary's response is to Jesus better be in your gospel because that's what you're commissioning them to do. Give up your pasticos nardos. Pour it out so that you can have Jesus. Repent and believe. Forsake your old life so that you can have a new life. What did this woman do? She showed us how faith works. Repent and believe. Now, out of those two, which one saves? Are you saved by repenting? Actually, that's a very dangerous doctrine to weave into Christianity. To think that you are saved simply by dumping things out. Mm -mm. You're not saved by repenting. However, true faith always is accompanied by repentance. And that's the key thing to denote. You are saved by faith and faith alone. However, if it is real faith, it will always include repentance. Now, after that, John was put in prison. So this is John the Baptist that's speaking of. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So Jesus' ministry is now just beginning. 
and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And what is his commission? What is he proclaiming? He says, repent ye and believe the gospel. Give up your spikenard and turn unto me. Is the concept. See, this is the message of the kingdom. This is the very message that all the apostles went into all the world to preach. They continued this. And you're going to notice that repent and believe are intertwined. It's not pouring out earthly spikenard that saves. It's faith that saves. It's believing that Christ is our rightful pastikos nardos that truly supplies us salvation. And when we see Jesus as our lone source of salvation, like Mary, we will gladly grab our jar of earthly spikenard and as an evidence of our faith, repent of putting our confidences therein and pour it out upon him as an offering of worship. So I want to give you two illustrations just to quickly enunciate this. In our practicum program, we're going through what we call the gospel toolkit. It's a really fun class. And I, you're going to have to go through the practicum to fully understand what it is. I'll just I'll bait you with that. However, we're going through using the entire campus to intimately acquaint uh, everyone in the practicum with the 35 key locations of the gospel message so that when you're walking someone through, you literally can walk someone through those 35 key locations for their soul to be walked through unto a fullness of life. It's a really exciting class. But in it, we have one of the illustrations, which is seeing your Savior and believing your Savior. So we liken it to, it's like a parachute. It's like a backpack. And so a lot of us, we don't realize that there's a big cliff up there. And the only way into the kingdom of heaven is to somehow pass from this cliff edge to this cliff edge. And if you try in your own strength to jump, you're going to land at the bottom. And so God has made supply for us, and he's given us a backpack. It's actually a parachute. And see, we don't know that everything that is needed to make that jump is actually there that will actually carry us. He will be the wind. He will be the sail. Everything we need to make that transition from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. Many of us grab a hold of our parachute and we keep it under our arm. So do you have the parachute of Jesus Christ? I do. Thank you for asking. I'm a very happy owner of the parachute. And yet that's not really how faith works. You see, you have something on your back. You see, a parachute is meant to be put over your shoulders and hang on your back. However, there's something already there, something that you've been putting trust in your entire life. It's a backpack full of your dead works. They're big, heavy rocks. And if you ever jump with that, you're like a missile to the bottom of the canyon. And so what does God say? Uh, could you remove that which is on your back, Mr. Ludi, so that we can slip on the parachute so that salvation truly functionally works in your life. You see, you're not saved by putting off. You're saved by putting on. But to put on, you need to forsake the first. You need to let go of that which you have previously put trust in. You actually were putting trust in your rocks? Your dead works? Those are like, I mean, dead weight on you. You're going to try and make this jump. You're like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I was told that that would work. Yeah, but now that you know the truth, the truth sets you free. Let go of the previous. Let go of that which you put your confidence in in the earthly sense because it will not save you and put on that which truly can. Giving up the old backpack for the parachute. The cup illustration, I've used this many times, but say that my life is a cup, but just, you know, because we all are. We are vessels that are meant to be filled. However, when we first come unto God, 
we realize that we're full, but of the wrong stuff. We're full of us. We're full of our own confidences, our own abilities, our own skills, all our own dreams and ambitions. And what God says is, look, I have something I want to give you. It's living water. And yet you have polluted water inside of you. You're meant to be a cup to hold that which I can give you and then to pour it out on the world. But to receive my living water in your cup, we need to deal with first things first. You need to dump out that which is already in the cup so that I can fill you. And that's how Christianity works. It's called repent and believe. You see, repentance is not what saves, but it is always associated with the action of belief. Because if you truly believe that he is your savior, you forsake all those other saviors. Pouring out the poisoned water inside in order that it might be filled with living water. Welcome to the garden. So we're going to go back in time, close to 6,000 years now. Isn't that an amazing thought that we can count from Adam and Eve? Uh, actually, it's somewhere around 5,700, 5,800 years since Adam and Eve. And so we're going all the way back. And out of the ground, God, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. So there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Boo. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. If ye eat of this tree, Adam, you will die. You know, there's two trees. It's the funniest thought. God doesn't say, don't eat from the tree of life. In fact, he has access to all the trees in the garden. And there's two trees mentioned in the middle. One tree is the tree of life. The other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God doesn't talk about the tree of life when he says this. He says, if you eat of this tree, Adam, the day in which you do it, you will surely die. I mean, it's not that hard for me to think all these thousands of years later, that was a bad decision, Adam. Come on, buddy. Have you ever thought that he could have just turned and eaten the, from the tree of life and been satisfied? What's the guy doing? Same thing we do. So here's us. Standing in the midst of the garden, we have a choice. And this is where faith comes in. You see, over to one side, you have the bait of the enemy. And the bait of the enemy is always diminishing the word of God. God spoke, and he says, the day in which you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And what does the enemy say? God's not telling you the full truth. God didn't actually really mean that. See, God doesn't want you to know that if you eat of this tree, you're going to become like him. You don't need to be ruled by him. You could be a co-equal. You could maybe even rule him. Self-exaltation, the great disease of humanity, is this direction. The day in which you go in that direction you die. Death is merely the absence of life. So you will lose life. You will lose all that has been made available to you in God. So on this other side, we have the tree of life. You eat it, you live forever. The wooing of the liar. Satan is always calling us in the wrong direction. And even as I give this message, there are a thousand reasons why the enemy wants to plant in your life why you can't fully trust God. Why? He may not come through for you. That is the enemy's voice. God has said it, and will he not make it good? God cannot lie. When you know these things about the nature of God, 
you recognize, well, he said it, therefore he must do it. He's not like the enemy. He's not a liar. God is truth. Therefore, every single thing he says, you can bank on it. The first Adam's failure, it's well documented, not a happy story, but Adam rebels. He defies God's word. He believes false doctrine. He believes the lie instead of the truth. And the day in which he does it, he dies. He is cut off from God. We are in Adam's failure. So it's a strange thing genetically to understand these things, but the term in the New Testament is in Christ. When we believe in Jesus, we're actually transferred from being genetically in the lineage of Adam's race to being now in Christ Jesus. You see, and not to go into any more detail than is necessary, but I was in my father even before I was born. And my father was in my grandfather before he was born. And so on, all the way back to Adam and every single one of us, when Adam was in that garden, I know you weren't born yet, I wasn't born yet, but 57, 5,800, nearly 6,000 years ago, when Adam was in this situation between two trees, we were there. We were there in Adam. And when he chose what he did, he took us along with him. And so therefore, in Adam, we all die. When Adam died, we died. We're dead. Even when we pop out of our mother's womb, we are separated. There is a condition of soul that is off, that is wrong. And there is only one solution for it, and it's not spikenard. Spikenard cannot give a remedy to your soul condition. It cannot rescue you from Adam's punishment. It can do some amazing things. I have to admit, spikenard's a pretty amazing substance. But it cannot do what you truly need done. There's only one that can do that work. And his name is Jesus. And unless you turn and forsake all that is in this camp of the enemy unto Jesus, you cannot be saved. So we are, in, we are in Adam's failure. We are born clinging to our very expensive big jar of earthly healing juice. We are born like this, clinging to spikenard, going, okay, I'm going to pull this off. I know I can do it. If I just work hard, if I discipline myself, then maybe if I just am good enough, if, I, if I'm nice to people, if I try to just be a little forgiving, if I offer a little mercy every now and then, maybe that will be sufficient. Your spikenard will not save you. And when you finally recognize that, you realize, I need to give this up. This is actually hindering me. I only have two arms to wrap around one thing. I want to make sure I'm wrapping around the right thing. The two trees. So we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't know how you want to pronounce that. Tukogaya. Uh, and you have the tree of life. Two trees. There's always been two trees. There's two trees in front of you right now. And faith is the decision between those trees. Are you going to heed the enemy? Are you going to heed the voice of experience, the voice of emotion? Or are you going to heed the voice of truth? Are you going to heed the word of God? The word of God in text, which is called scripture. The word of God in person, which is called Jesus Christ. When you believe upon Jesus Christ, that is salvation. First, what is a tree? You know that a tree all throughout the Bible is a place of decision and a place of judgment. It's weird. God has a language all throughout the Bible about this. I mean, there's trees everywhere. Once you start studying, it's like, wow, trees. And they're a place of decision. You make decisions at trees. There's a, it's a place of judgment. Any man who's hung on a tree is, is accursed. 
It's a place of judgment. And so trees, judgment and decision, is like a judicial thing. And so justice and trees, associated. You think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yep, that's where the judgment came, right there. They made a decision, and there was a judgment. Well, how about the cross? It was a place of decision. It's a place of decision for all of us. And there was judgment made on that cross. Satan, in his power and his authority, is nullified. The powers of darkness, death, are dealt with. Judgment came at that cross. Jesus became sin for us, absorbed that penalty, was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. It's a place of decision, a place of judgment. It's pretty amazing. The law of the forbidden tree. If you eat, you die. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eats thereof, thou shalt surely die. It's actually pretty clear, isn't it? God's not mumbling it. He's not stuttering it. He just says it. The day in which you eat of that tree, you will die. Remember, we're talking about the truth here. He cannot lie. When he speaks, he will in fact do it. The law of the second tree. So there are two trees. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there's a law to the second tree. Unless you eat, you cannot live. Isn't that an interesting thing to contrast the two? If you eat, you die. Unless you eat, you cannot live. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you eat, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's the law of the second tree. Isn't that an amazing thought? I don't know if you're as excited about it as I am. That's incredible. You see, you are going to eat something, but you must choose which tree you eat from. Eat from the wrong tree, you die. Eat from the right tree, you live. So you eat, you die. Over there, the black stuff. The white stuff you eat, you live. On, the, on whatever side that is, it's my left, your right. This is called the law of sin and death. Or you sin, you die. And that's what we're under. We're in Adam and he's under that law. He ate, therefore he lives in death. And that's called the law of sin and death. And we're all born into it. And by faith, we escape the lineage of Adam and the condemnation of Adam and enter into Jesus Christ, who has satisfied justice, who has satisfied the law. And therefore, we've eaten of Jesus. I know it sounds strange, but he's like fruit hanging from a tree. And when we come to that cross, we receive that fruit. And when we eat of that tree, we live. The two trees and their fruit, the the forbidden tree, it's a promise of self-glory. It's the word of the liar. You could be something. You don't need to heed God. You, you can exalt yourself. The second tree is a promise of salvation. It's the word of God. Not the word of a liar. This is the word of God. It's the word of truth. These two trees are very distinct from one, one from the other. Now, you're going to see, I'm going to begin to build a line in the middle. Because this is how faith works. Faith is born out of a decision. Part of what faith is has that factor involved in it. So it's all about you. Now, this guy, I don't know what he looks like, this little stick figure, but he's actually crossing a line. He's no longer in the decision-making process. He's actually made a decision. So that's a movement uh, to my left, your right. And basically, he's saying, I want it to be about me. It's for my sake. It's for my glory. When you make that decision, you die. 
That is literally everything that the enemy wants. That's what he's baiting us towards. And every temptation he ever works in our life, it's you, your comforts, your glory, your satisfaction. And that leads to death. And you'll see what he's forsaking. He's forsaking the fact that it's supposed to all be about God. And when we make our life all about God, we live. It's a funny thing. I know some people try and call God egotistical. However, God loves us. He knows what truly brings us life. And he says, you make me the center and you can live. It's sort of like trying to make Mars the center of our universe instead of the sun. It's like everything gets out of whack. It's like, you know, unless the sun is at the center, the whole thing is, is not going to function. Everything about it is just going to go into haywire, into a, a state of catastrophe. Abraham, the man who had no children. We're talking about faith. This, is, this guy is known as the father of the faith. So what do we need to know about this guy? Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram. That was his name. But thy name shall be Abraham. Why does that matter? For I have, for a father of many nations have I made thee. You know that when God told Abram that and changed his name, you know that Abram uh, had no children? Uh, did you know that Abram's wife was uh, barren and couldn't bear children? You know how preposterous this is? You know that the entire lineage of what we understand as faith comes out of the impossible? God says, no, I'm going to call you Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. What an ironic statement. You're going to make me a father, says Abraham. I don't even have an heir. I mean, I can't even have an heir. This woman you, you have me with is sort of having some issues. Uh, God, uh, this, is, this isn't the best plan. Abraham, you know what it means? Father of a numberless multitude. You see, it's a name of faith. Father of so many, you can't even count them. That's the name God gives Abraham. You see, what God is doing in our life is he's saying, look, there's the reality of the natural realm around you. What does the natural realm say? It says, yeah, I can't have any kids. That's impossible. And what does God's truth say? He says, I want you to turn this way, Abraham. I'm giving you a name. I'm giving you a promise. And if I speak to you, you can guarantee it to come to pass. I'm telling you right now that you're going to be the father of many nations. The father of so many you can't even count them. Do you believe, Abraham? And he has to forsake this voice. What's the voice saying? That's impossible. You can't do that. Sarah's barren. You can't actually have that happen, Abraham. But Abraham is going to make a decision. And he is going to believe God instead of that voice. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old and shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? You see, Abraham's first response wasn't perfect. Your first response may not be perfect either. You see, it's funny that Abraham is the classic picture of the faith and yet Abraham blundered his way through this. It'll be a little encouragement to us. You see, Abraham made a lot of mistakes. Even the name for Isaac in the Hebrew is Yitzhak, which is actually sort of like going, ha, 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 ha. It's an automyopia. In other words, it actually says what it means. It means laughter. That's the name of Isaac. And so God's saying, yeah, why don't we name him? Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. You believe in me, and I'm the one going, ha, ha, ha. God's word is true. He staggered not. Who staggered not? Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Promise of God. It's impossible. But he staggered not 
at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. If God says it, he'll do it. This is faith. So here's Abraham. He's leaping, full confidence, into the promise of God. God said it, he'll do it. If God has promised, can you give me any reason why we shouldn't trust it? With one? Because God is faithful. He is true. He will, in fact, do it. So if God says it, he'll do it. You know that he doesn't have to give us promises? God could have just remained silent on all these points. Instead, God has come and condescended to come down to us and reveal to us his purposes. And he says, this is what I will do. This is belief. He says, just put your confidence in my nature. Put your confidence in the fact that I have said it and I will make it good. And that is faith. So, but that is impossible. It's constantly yelling from over on this side. That which is impossible with man is possible with God. What's happened to this sort of faith? The sort of faith that just lunges towards God. When I teach in the basic semester, I stick a pedestal up here with the Bible on it, and I stick a pedestal up here with an apple on it. And there's a constant back and forth. We, most of us, are caught in the middle. And we are making decisions out of our peripheral vision this way. We're like, okay, God, I I see what you're saying over there, but the enemy has a really good case over here. And so I don't want to just turn my back on the enemy because I might be missing some very important data that the enemy wants to give me here. And so we play in the middle. We're Christians, but we're not fully turning our back on everything the enemy has to say and just believing the word of God. God knows what he's doing. He created the heavens and the earth. I trust him. When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? No, no. We're not talking about this sort of thing where you have one eye over here going, yes, yes, enemy, I hear you. That's a very good point. Now let me check the scriptures. Okay, God, I see what you're saying, but the enemy has a really good point here. I mean... I read Da Vinci Code the other day, and they just said a whole bunch of stuff. This whole thing is a conspiracy. Okay? Be careful what you read. Be careful who you listen to. God has spoken. And when God speaks, he cannot lie. He is not like us. Who can lie? He is truth. It is impossible, it says in Scripture, for God to lie. When you're truth... You just tell the truth. God has no lie in him. So doubt, it's a key player in this whole thing. And some people feel that they're a victim to doubt, sort of like it's a personality disorder. It's like, oh, no, I have some doubt. And I understand where this comes from. I've grown up in the same Christian culture you have. However, if you treat doubt as if it's like taste for pizza types or uh, different Uh, personality things, like some people like to be around people, some people like to be introverted and, you know, away from people, you'll die in the hands of doubt. Doubt is malevolent. It is out to absolutely destroy and eat up your soul. You do not play patty cake with it. You must recognize it as the enemy of your soul, and you must deal aggressively with it. How do you deal aggressively with doubt? You believe. You see, when you walk in faith, Doubt has no ability, no function, because doubt is merely making a decision against something. 
When you doubt God, you are doubting and making a decision against his truth. When you doubt the enemy, you are making a decision against the enemy's voice. You're going to doubt something. Just make sure you don't doubt God. So this is what the word typically translated as doubt in the New Testament is. It's diacrino, which means to side against to ally with one over against another, to forsake a previous allegiance, to waver in support of one candidate and vote in support of another. And so you hear, you know, the, the debate back and forth, and you're like, Jesus, I'm with you, okay? When it comes to, uh, you know, Super Tuesday, I'm going to vote for you. And Jesus says, I appreciate your vote. And then you hear the, the slick politician over here, and he says, that guy's lying to you. You know, the moment he gets elected, he's bumping up your taxes, okay? I, I've seen his plan. I heard, you know, the behind-the-scenes meeting. And he's throwing all the mud this way. And so you begin to doubt. And you begin to be convinced by a voice that is altogether not God's voice. And so what you do is come Super Tuesday, you vote for the competing candidate. That's called doubt. When you turn and side against God and you believe the enemy's voice as more credible than the truth, it's called doubt. And that will destroy your life. So this is the basic concept of how doubt works. It is building a wall. It's a wall of doubt. And so it's saying, you know, God, on this point, I, I, I know you have a lot of great points over here. I mean, kudos for that. However, there's a few things in my life where I just disagree with you on. Okay, and the enemy just has made such an airtight case on these points. And so on these points, I'm going to turn my back. Now, I really am not wanting to do this, God, but I'm going to turn my back towards your truth on those points, and I'm going to support the enemy's ideas on this. I mean, he just, he just are really good. And you die. This is not how we live out our Christian life. If you are entertaining doubt, Stop. Do not coddle it in your soul. It is not some cute teddy bear that you take to bed with you. This is a monster. It may look cute, but it is killing you. So you have the word of the liar. I don't know why any of us would ever believe the word of the liar. However, every single one of us in here could raise our hand and say, yep, I've done it. And then you have the word of truth, the one that can't lie, the one that created the heavens and the earth, the one that gave up his very son to rescue us and his sacrifice and suffered greatly, and we're not believing him? I mean, what, what kind of logic are we living by? It's a really bizarre uh, reality we live in. Introducing the slick attorney. Uh -huh. You see, this isn't just an apple over here. There's a personality over here. There's an intent. There's a voice. There's a mind at work over here. It's called the power of darkness. And this is hatching plans constantly to woo you. Woo your gaze, your focus, and your confidence away from the clearness of God's word and promise over to something else. So the slick attorney, he's that one over here with the pungent cologne. Oh, buddy, uh, about five too many sprays there. Uh, the slicked back greasy hairdo, in fact, it's so greasy that you have a blob of grease going, it even makes that noise when it goes down. The disturbing toothy grin. Have you ever seen that grin? He's like, eh. and then it's like, ding. There's like that gold cap tooth way back here, and you can see it every time. And he just, you don't trust him. I mean, I, I know what you mean. It's like one of those billboards of litigation attorney. You're, you're like, eh, I don't know that I'd trust that guy. 
People still go to this guy. I don't know why they still go to him. He has a disturbing toothy grin that never stops yammering. He's always talking. Oh, boy. Are you going to keep talking over there? He's always talking. Uh-huh. He's known as the slick attorney. That's what we call him around here. You listen to the slick attorney again? I mean, all of us don't like the guy. We're all, in a sense, in agreement that he's a bad dude. And yet, how many of us are spending a good deal of every day listening to his counsel? I say, cut it off! And some of you can say, well, it's, e- it's not as easy as that, Eric. You see, I'm used to sitting on his couch every day. I'm used to being his client. I'm used to listening to him. Well, it's high time we dump out some spike nard. It's high time we put action to our faith instead of passivity. We need to do something if we're going to believe that Jesus Christ truly is Lord of our life. Act upon it. So you have the slick attorney over there, and then you have Jesus. Now, it's just not a wise spiritual model for your life to choose that. And yet, that's how many of us, ironically, will default in the day, though we are Christians, we will believe the enemy and listen to the slick attorney and actually doubt, get this, doubt God's word. I mean, can you think of a more ridiculous thing to do? Doubting God's word, the barrier to truth. The truth shall make you free. So which side is going to make you free? The enemy, I know, he's always talking about how this could really save you. This will knock off 10 pounds. Uh, yeah, this will actually cure that. Yeah, if you go through this program, I tell you, it's guaranteed to work. 100% money back guarantee. He has so many sales gimmicks over here. I don't know if you guys are sensitive to sales gimmicks. I was looking for some soccer training thing for Hudson, and I clicked on this one thing, and I tell you what, it went on forever. Hudson and I were laughing. This guy was just like, and if you buy in the next 10 minutes, I told Hudson. I go, I can come back five days from now. Same deal. If you buy in the next 10 minutes, it's just a video. It's like, how is he supposed to measure the 10 minutes? The whole thing is a gimmicky ridiculousness, and it bothers me. But that's how this side works. It's constantly working on pressure, time, You need to do it now. This can really get you where you want to be. What kind of car do you want to be driving? Well, I was really thinking of Mercedes. We can get that for you. You see, we are on your side. This voice will kill you, eat you for lunch, and spit out your bones. There is a voice that you can trust with your life. It'll never lie to you. It's after your highest good. And though it commissions you to come and lay down your life and die, it is desiring to fill you with all of life for eternity. You have to choose which voice you're going to trust. The truth shall make you free. The lie shall lock you away in everlasting chains. You choose. So everlasting chains, everlasting freedom. Don't doubt God's everlasting freedom. How does faith function? This is how faith functions right here. This is your mental picture. You see, you know that the wall of doubt is still there? You know what you're choosing to do? You're choosing to believe God and turn your back on the enemy's voice. I don't hear you, enemy. I know you're yammering back there. I could even imagine the blob of grease streaming down your forehead, even as I speak. However, I have chosen to believe the word of God on this matter and not even entertain your thoughts on it. How refreshing. That I don't even need to feel guilty about not being well-rounded and open-minded in my discussions, in my processing. 
I do not need to entertain one thought outside of the word of God. I'm safe right here. It's called the mind of Christ. I'm open. I have an open mind, by the way, to God's word. And whatever he wants to correct, he's right. Whatever he says that differs from anything I think, he's right. I submit to that and I believe. And I build a wall right here, diacrino. I side against the enemy. I doubt the enemy's voice. I doubt that, liar. Uh-huh, that's not true either. I believe the word of God. I doubt the word of the enemy. So what's over there? All other saviors. But this healing concoction could really do it for you, Ludi. I doubt that. I know the healing concoction that will save me. You know, all these people are running for a cure. They're still looking for it. Cure is already there. His name is Jesus. And he shed his blood to give us the cure. Run around all day long. You're not going to find it. And even if they found some cure for cancer, something that would abate death for another season, it does not abate eternal separation from God. There was only one solution for our soul's need. I think I told you guys this. It was a few Sundays ago. I was, I was clipping something out of my computer, and Hudson came over and goes, what was that picture you took? And it was like these 20 boxes. It was some movement to the UN that they were going to make this pitch of how we were going to change the world. United humanity was going to change the world. We were going to save trees. We were going to save fish. We were going to recycle. I mean, it was political correctness out the wazoo. And I told Hudson, and he says, so what is that? I said, it's something that makes Daddy really mad. And I said, everything on here is fine. There's nothing necessarily wrong with recycling. I'm, I'm definitely open to taking care of things around me. I have a clean house. I don't want to just throw trash out on the street. However, there's something strangely missing from this list. How come no one's interested in what God's interested in? He's interested in saving souls. I don't see that on the list. Isn't it fascinating that this voice can sound so good, so right, and be so wrong? We have one singular agenda, even if all the fish in the seas die and us accomplishing it. Even if trash actually, you know, one of those uh, things that should have been recycled actually rolls into the other garbage bin. <gasps> even if we have an agenda, and that is to go after souls. Grabbing a hold of the promiser and not letting go. Jacob wrestled, I love this quote by Ian Bounds. Jacob wrestled not so much with a promise as with the promiser. Jacob in the dark of the night believed. You see, he'd come to the end of himself and he realized that as long as I listen to this voice, it won't, it won't work. And so he turned his back on ever grabbing Esau again. He grabbed the heel of Esau. He tried to get the birthright from Esau. He uh, deceived to get the inheritance. And guess what? He's still as miserable as ever. He couldn't do it in his own strength. And so finally, instead of grabbing, that's what his name means, heel grabber. Instead of grabbing the heel of the flesh of the firstborn life, your own ability, your own strength, your own wit, your own wisdom, he lets go of all that, forsakes it, and grabs God. However, it wasn't just a promise that he was grabbing. He was grabbing the person. He grabbed the promisor. You want to know how Christianity works? It's not just a zone that you turn to, some scripture reference. You're grabbing a person. 
you're forsaking that, all that you've trusted in to grab a hold of a person. The promiser is what his name is. That's what we're going to call him right now. He cannot lie. He will not change. He is the same forever. And get this, brace yourselves. He is eager to answer. You see, God is actually the initiator, not the responder. Get this, brace yourselves for these truths. If you desire him, it's because he desires you. You would not desire him if he didn't first desire you. So if you desire him, you can guarantee there's no hand slap when you approach him. If you desire to turn away from all these other saviors and to find salvation in Jesus Christ, if you desire that, well, guess what? It's because he desires it. And when you come unto him and you reach out to hold him, he will not slap your wrist. He will not push you away. Four key truths about faith. Faith, to be genuine faith, must have action. It must believe. Faith must have an object, a focal point in which to direct its confidence. Faith, if it be real faith, will not waver from its focal point. This is the key test, what you're being built for. When you believe, you don't waver back and forth. It says that Abraham staggered not. The idea of diacrino is this. What did you have to say, enemy? Okay, just checking. God, I'm a little concerned about this one. This is called wavering. And faith, to be true faith, the sort of faith that God says, will I find faith on the earth when I come? It stays in position, and no matter what bombs are going off back here, it resolutely stands. I believe. I believe. One of the classic illustrations I give at Ellerslie is Lazarus and the four days in the tomb. Jesus, on this side, gives his word He speaks forth a promise. And what does he say to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? He says, this sickness will not end in death. Huh, he said it. It's out there. He cannot lie. And then uh, Jesus leaves town. What happens to Lazarus? Uh, Sort of awkward to mention, but he sort of dies. I I know that doesn't fit what Jesus said, but what else are we going to say? I mean, the guy, he's not breathing. He's just sort of laying there like a lump. And so we wrap him up in grave claws and we stick him in a grave and stick a stone in front of it. And you know, we remember Jesus' word. What does he say? This sickness will not end in death. And what is the enemy saying? So, how you doing there with the promise of God? Mm-hmm. You know, last time I checked, that's called death. Mm-hmm. You might want to consider taking your gaze off of this Jesus fellow and maybe sticking it on reality. Mm-hmm. You see, the experience is testifying that God lied to you. How are you doing in this situation? How are you doing? Because you're standing there in the middle. Do you remember Jesus' words? Do you remember his promise? Because he cannot lie. He is the same forever. He will not change. He has spoken. And he said, this sickness will not end in death. So how you doing? One day passes. It was a long day. And Lazarus still appears to be dead. Two days. Three days. Four. Four days. That's hard. Did Jesus' promise go away in the meantime? No. Guess who shows up in town? Jesus. What does he say? Roll away the stone. Uh, but Lord, he stinketh. 
Lazarus, come forth. What was the word of God on the matter? This sickness will not end in death. Every time throughout history, God's word is always backed by God's nature. He will do it. Your job in those days is not to do this. Your job is to be a believer. Isn't that ironic? That Christianity, what we are called is believers. And yet I would say that's probably not what we're typically doing. But to call us doubters doesn't sound very healthy. We are believers. When God says it, we trust it. Putting doubt in its place. See, that's what doubt is producing, a whole bunch of bad fruit in your life. You want to know all the junk that's happening in your life, all the bad decisions, all the bad attitudes, all the bad behaviors? Uh -huh. It happens on the other side of that wall. And when you spend your time focusing on and listening to what the enemy has to say, your life bears bad fruit. And so there it is. Just let it stink over there. It actually doesn't affect you over here. That wall is, you know, is impermeable. That stink can't even get through. Yeah, that's just what's going on over there. It smells like hell, probably sulfurous type of smell. But you don't participate with that. You keep your gaze on the word of God and you stand resolutely right here. This is the manly dimension of the Christian faith. Doggedly you hold on. I mean, bombs going off, screams and yells, Looney, you must consider this. No, I will not move. I believe God's word. It's a Christian. That's how we as believers live our life. We are resolute and dogged in our determination to believe God. Ready for the test, eager for the fire. For real faith doesn't stagger at the seeming impossibilities. So we'll call the Christian the original tree hugger. We're hugging the promiser. We're holding on to God. We're the original tree huggers. Trial by fire. Noah was tested by a cloudless sky for 40 to 70 years. We don't know exactly how long it was. However, could you imagine what it's like to receive the word of God on the matter? A flood will come. Very likely it had never rained before. That's a hard job to keep your gaze fixed this way, even though the entire world around you is going to hell. They're making fun of you. They probably want you dead. How are you doing if you're in Noah's shoes? Are you a believer? Abraham tested by both the sheer impossibility of the promise and the interminable passage of time. You will be the father of many nations, Abraham. Oh, sacrifice your son to me. So, God, let me get this straight. I finally get a son. And then you ask me to lay him down. I thought I was supposed to be the father of many nations. I thought it was through the seed of Isaac that you would bring forth that Messiah. I can't. I trust you. He kept his gaze and he staggered not at the promise of God. It says in the New Testament that Abraham was sure and certain that even though no man had ever been raised from the dead, that Isaac would be raised from the dead. For obviously it's in Isaac that his seed would be called. So obviously God has spoken on the matter. He's asking me to lay down his life and to sacrifice him. Well, God knows what he's doing. Do you know what God's doing? Are you willing to trust that God knows best? Jacob tested by the long, dark night. Caleb tested by the 31 hostile giant empires. Our God is more than able to do it, says Caleb. 
Caleb, didn't you see what the rest of them saw? Walled cities reaching up to the heavens, giants in their land. We're a bunch of brick makers. We can't do this. God is more than able to accomplish it. What are you seeing? Are you listening to this voice or are you listening to God? The men and women that we esteem all throughout history are those that turned their back on that voice and believed. David tested by the lion, the bear, and the 12 and a half foot tall man beast. I know in some of the translations they say that uh, Goliath is like nine, nine and a half feet tall. Really bothers me. Not because he wasn't, he may have been, but that's the difference of a cubit. You see, you can measure by a small cubit or a long cubit. I have no idea why anyone would measure by a short cubit, since no one knows for sure. Let's use the long one and make him huge, and then when he falls, he falls all the harder. <laughs> Mary and Martha tested by Lazarus' four days in the tomb. The disciples tested by the boat filling up with water. How are you doing when your boat is filling up with water? You know what happens when boats fill up with water? You sink. Uh, we got a storm around us, a boat filling up with water, and you look over at Jesus. This is what happens in all of our lives. We look over at Jesus, and he's, he appears to be sleeping. I, I don't know if he truly is knowing what's going on here. I think he's uh, out, of, out of the loop. Are you bailing water, or are you laying down next to Jesus and going to sleep? See, I still picture Jesus opening his eye when everyone looks away, seeing what's going on, and then closing it again. Now imagine if Peter does something completely different in this situation. Imagine if he says, hey guys, mm, I'm going to get myself a little shut-eye. In the middle of a storm, while the boat's filling up with water, it says their lives were in jeopardy. And imagine that we started doing what Jesus is doing. The moment you lay down and go lay next to him, what does Jesus do? He opens his eyes and says, well done. And the storm ceases and the boat empties. Most of us struggle in those moments and we're bailing water because what's the enemy saying? You're going to die! What is the word of God saying? I'm in control. Do you trust me, Eric? Do you trust me? Keep your eyes here, right here. Keep it on fact. Keep it on truth. No, no. Don't turn to experience. Don't turn to your current circumstances. Don't measure anything by that. Keep it here. Keep it here on my truth. The disciples tested by the boat filling up with water. Peter tested by the natural laws of water and men walking upon it. You know that men can't walk on water? Uh, technically speaking, according to natural law, it is impossible. You sink in water. And yet, there are two men in history that actually walked on water. Probably others, but I know of two. Jesus and Peter. Peter actually walked on water. It's pretty amazing. Jesus is standing out there. Peter gets out of the boat and actually walks on water. That's amazing. But then something started happening the moment he started walking. The same thing that's going to happen to you in your life. There's a big wave from over on this side of the ledger. <sighs> big gust of wind comes from over here. Peter turned his gaze from Jesus and looked at the wave. He turned his gaze from Jesus and heeded the wind. And the moment he took his gaze off of the word of God, what happened? He began to sink. This is the secret to how faith works. You stay resolute. Could you imagine if Peter had walked this through different? He's actually walking on water, and Jesus says, keep your gaze on me. Right here. Right here. It's like, Jesus, there's, there's like a wave coming up. It's like a big Hawaiian surf wave, and it's about to swallow me up. And Jesus says, I know. I know. Keep your gaze on me. 
He will always be stable and always be sure. Okay, Jesus, I trust you. I, I really do. If he kept walking, what happens to that wave? It crests over him, looking like it's going to lick him up. And then, it's nothing. You see, all of the enemy is noise. It's alarms going off. The enemy has no power to destroy your life. None. He actually cannot stop your calling. You must be resolute in your position. It does not mean that like Jesus, you may not be turned over into the hands of sinners. But even then, God is in control. And even if your earthly life is killed, the enemy actually has no glory and no gain from it. Our lives are held in the hollow of his hand. And when we live in faith and we die in faith, God wins every time. Faith overcomes. John tested by the sight of the Messiah suffering, dying, and being buried. How would you be doing if your Messiah was uh, hanging on a cross, silent? Jesus, could you come down? Call that legion of angels. Please, don't, I, I can't endure this any longer. If you really are my Messiah, you need to show some muscle. Show yourself strong. You're supposed to defeat the Romans. This doesn't seem to be accomplishing anything. You're being mocked and ridiculed. Aren't you God? How are you doing at the cross? When you look at the cross, do you see the triumph of the Messiah? Everyone around you is mocking, and they say, why are you so happy? He's doing it. He's doing it. I know it looks weak right now, but he is victorious. He is my triumphant king. Look at him. He's fulfilling all scripture. He's accomplishing it. This must happen. He's bearing the weight of the sin of the world. Do you see that? Do you see what the word of God testifies? Or do you only see what the enemy is pointing out? What do you see? The eyes of faith behold the triumph. You know that one thief mocked him and the other thief actually said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sure didn't look like a king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know you're a king. Remember me. Oh! That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Your faith must be tested. So I guarantee you, the moment you position yourself like this, you're going to have bomb blasts. You're going to have winds. You're going to have Hawaiian surf waves. Your job is to keep your gaze fixed. So the four key truths, look at the fourth one. Faith must be proven authentic and therefore it must be tested with fire. Don't be afraid of it. God is going to mature and strengthen your faith through that testing. The two trees in the midst of the garden and in the midst of our souls. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you spend any time in this direction, it's called sin. That which is of faith pleases God. It's the only thing that pleases God. So... All of life's challenges over there, Jesus and him crucified over there. That's where you live. In the midst of our marriages, there's selfishness over there. How about we say goodbye to that and we allow selflessness to reign in our life? In the midst of our families, there's frustration over there. You ever given into that? Yeah, those kids, they don't always obey. And yet, over here is patience. Why wouldn't we just choose to eat from this tree? Why in the world would we go to that one? The enemy's like, you really deserve a meal for this one. Don't listen to him. In the midst of our financial challenges, fear, anxiety, fretting, foreboding, they don't actually solve your financial challenges, by the way. 
How about unshakable confidence? God knows our needs. He's seen this ahead of time, even before we got here. He's made provision. We can trust him. In the midst of our health impediments, in the midst of danger, in the midst of our spiritual calling, the great quote of the faith-filled soul, watch what my God will do. In every situation, you're going to hear the boast of the enemy. And God will even allow it sometimes to go four days, and there will be a stink from that tomb. And he says, did I not speak? Yes, you did, Lord. I trust. I whisper this all the time in my life. Watch. Watch what my God will do. And you can say, who are you talking to? I don't know. I figure there's a whole heavenly realms out there, and they're witnessing the lives and the decisions of faith. And so whoever's listening in, I want you to know something. My God is faithful and true. So all of you, watch what my God will do. He cannot lie. And he has promised. I'm not perfect in this whole faith thing. But I know one who is. It's called the faith of the Son of God. I want his faith. His rock-solid, unshakable faith. Don't look to your own. Look to his. He is our confidence. We plant ourselves in him. And we will not be moved forever. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.